Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the deep principles we hold dear, the state of our public conversations, and how we can build better relationships with people different from ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear me speaking to Justin Welby, who's got lots of long titles he would rather I didn't use. He is, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that is probably all the introduction he needs. We spoke about the difficulties of leading the global and deeply diverse Anglican Communion, how he was dragged reluctantly into ordained ministry, and his need to occasionally switch off and watch an Avengers film. I really enjoyed talking to him at Lambeth Palace, and I hope you enjoy listening. Justin, uh, I want to talk to you about your sacred values, which is a slightly tricky concept, but it's really about the values or principles that have formed your life that feel quite defining. And when they're pressed on you, get that, ugh, that strong, instinctive, negative reaction. Um, I have a theory that sacred values are really important for us to understand in ourselves and in others, because often they're implicit, but they are driving so many of these disagreements and differences. So having had a little bit of time to reflect, would you have a guess at what yours are? Uh, yes, I'm happy to guess, but I'm probably wrong. I think it has to be relatively predictable that they have something to do with Christianity, which may be reassuring or not for for those who listen. But um, uh, at its heart are the values that come from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's the sense of uh, no evil is definitive, that, uh, that there is an opening of forgiveness and redemption to people, that the dignity of the human person is infinite. Uh, and then I suppose as I've thought about it more, and uh, I would say that Underlying it is some of the values that came from growing up and from family background of values of listening to people, of recognizing that I don't know everything. In fact, I probably know very, very, very little indeed. And that therefore, in almost everyone I meet, I'm going to learn something. And that particularly has an impact when dealing with other faiths, uh, again, from my mother's family background, my grandmother's. And, um, and then finally, that sense, the essential thing that whatever else can be taken away, a relationship with God in Jesus Christ can't. Unpack a little bit for me that... I'm summarising, but it seems like you were saying almost an intellectual humility or a, a kind of posture towards the world of seeking to learn. And uh, it's not always associated necessarily with people who went through Eton in our um, current moment. And you mentioned your mother. So was there was there explicit sitting down with your parents, teaching you that? Was it a character trait that you saw in an individual? How was that formed in you? No, I, I, I think it was... Um inherited by my mother but the biggest influence on that was my grandmother and it was listening to her talking to her as I grew up and I mean I grew up in uh, you know this rather confused family situation um, and uh, that had a big impact 
but with my grandmother was there was that sense of history of continuity and stability and listening to her talk about her own upbringing in india in the uh, early years of the 20th century and of her married life in india through the 20s and 30s um and uh, her experiences in the war that brought back to me that uh, and imbued in me uh, her own sense of humility before other civilizations before people of other uh, ethnic backgrounds uh, uh, of other heritages and cultures and a fascination with what makes them tick thank you and one of the things i remember my grandmother saying constantly which her father had said to her who was a very senior civil servant in the Indian civil service uh, on the viceroy's council at the end of the 19th century all this sort of stuff uh right into the early years well the 1920s actually 1920s and 30s and he used to say to her about india this was a civilization when the english were still running around painting themselves blue so that you know so don't dismiss it don't look down on it it's helpful thank you um your the story of your childhood and um your parents divorce and your father struggles with alcoholism and some of the you know, different care setups that you were in and then later uh, this discovery of uh, your paternity not being what you thought it was are all very much in the public domain and that i feel is quite unusual for uh, a senior figure at your level and it's been really interesting researching this and reading through you being quite vulnerable and open in a way that's really refreshing. And I have a confession to make because I have a journalistic background, um, at least in part, but what the instinct that... It's all right, it, we can forgive that. Thank you. Um, the instinct that it that I found arising in me was, oh, how do I find out something that people don't already know? And that I would call, <laughs> like, theologically, I, I, like, that, I then had to go and pray about that because that wasn't a beautiful instinct within me. And it. so the question really is about being a public person and of celebrity and this desire for people to get more and more from you, whether that's power, whether that's, um, you know, the, the legitimacy that your name lends to projects, you must go about in your life and feel the hunger of those around you. And how do you have a stable sense of self? And how do you know where the boundary is between the private and public and what you are willing to share and what you're not? I think how I know where the boundary is is a very good question. I am constantly struggling with that. I start with the assumption that God knows everything about me, even the things I don't know. And I have a strong dislike for hidden, no, not hiddenness, a, a strong dislike for lack of transparency, for pretending to be what you're not. Uh, which is very difficult in this job <laughs> because everyone has a sort of view of you. You find yourself, you're not just sort of um, put in one pigeonhole, you're put in every pigeonhole going. And, you know, two people will, from different angles, will hold um, entirely contradictory views of you at the same time. And it's, probably trying to sort of stick a flag in you, right, and say, oh, yeah, you know, he's ours, on our side, or, he's or, in our or team. Or he's on their side, he's the enemy. You know? Right. Uh, I've been fascinated in the last few weeks and months, not terribly encouraged, 
by hearing the number of people um, within some debates within the Anglican Communion going around saying, are you going to betray the church like Welby or are you going to stick with Jesus Christ? You know, all this sort of stuff. And so there is that sense of people wanting ownership and trying to work out what you give them. At the same time, I'm very conscious that one has to be in this role. One has to attempt to be politically savvy. And... um, uh, in uh, which I'm probably not sufficiently, but not Machiavellian, not like Talleyrand, sort of continually uh, twisting with whatever the latest fashion is, but careful about saying too much too soon, uh, and and um, giving people too much that means things can't be processed. Um, I suppose all of that comes from. Uh, I don't know. I mean, let's do some cheap psychology and, and say that some of that comes from a uh, an upbringing and a school where learning to keep your head down and know what not to say was as important as any other talent you ever gained. What was your experience like at school? Unbelievably mediocre. Um, there was... Eton is all kinds of funny things uh, and some not so funny. Uh I mean, it's an extraordinary education. It's one of those places where you can have no education or a huge education, or you could when I was there. It's changed. It's much tougher now. And um, the experience where they had this thing that you wore this strange uniform, a tailcoat and waistcoat, and you had a stiff collar with sharp edges pointing down into your shirt and a little sort of bit of tie, well, sort of bit of cotton that was a sort of white thing in the middle. But if you were clever or sporty, you got what they called stick-ups, which were wing collars. And you knew anyone who had stick-ups was sort of, you know, one of the great and the good at the school. It was their version of celebrity, of a public It was their person. version of celebrity. I never got stick-ups. I never got anywhere near getting stick-ups. I wasn't sporty. I wasn't clever. I was always in the middle of the pack and I kept my head down. So that's, that was my experience at school. And then you went on um, to Cambridge? I did go on to Cambridge. And uh, went to work. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll stop there and, and ask about that, that turning point that happened at university, which the kind of theological term we often use is conversion. Um, and you've spoken a little bit about a friend who took you to a talk and then explained uh, what Christians would call the gospel to you about the cross. And there being a moment of decision and a change in your life. And as I spend a lot of time talking across differences of belief and non-belief and have wonderful conversations with with atheists and non-believers and agnostics of all kinds, this is the thing that I think they find most difficult to understand. The imaginative leap into that world is very difficult. So I just wanted to ask again, in your own words, whether that resonates with you, if you remember a sense of surprise? Yes, that's Or if it was the more word. gradual? Funnily enough, as you said surprise, I was thinking surprise. So that was a really interesting question. It was, it was gradual. I mean, you can look back and, and look for, you know, and sort of see a gradual process probably. I don't know. But what I do remember was the surprise of the reality of God when I took a very tentative step of opening my life to God without really believing very much would happen at all. 
and there was surprise. It was, it was, I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, I think Lewis gets it beautifully in the Narnia books of stepping into another world. Uh, it's the same world, only it's different. It's very, very strange. It is strange. There's not, not good language for it, which is one no. of the great frustrations of this job as I try and um, but communicate something. It is the surprise of the reality of a God who loves, of encountering love, encountering acceptance, forgiveness, and realizing it's directed at oneself. It's not just a sort of general incohato, the world's not as bad as it looked kind of thing. It's a th- it's a personal God who says you matter, you personally. You know, in French, tu, not vous. Um, um, the thou, not the you in old-fashioned English. And, and that that directed, focused love, acceptance, forgiveness, purpose, call is utterly transformative and is not only that but is transformative for the world you went on to work in the oil industry and then uh you've described getting ordained as being you know dragged kicking and screaming into into that um, vocation and then not too long after that you went to coventry cathedral and got much more heavily involved in reconciliation work what do you think drew there are you just a peacemaker by nature what was what was the tug in that direction uh the tug was the bishop telling me to go and do it it was very, very, very simple. Never crossed my mind um, that that was where I'd end up uh, or that was my next stage. I mean, you say a little while later, it was a long time later, uh, three years training, three years of curate, seven years, so it's um, 13 years later. And the bishop said, I want you to go and do this job. And, and I sort of had this feeling that you should do what the bishop tells you to do, so I did. And I... Um I'm always surprised by how little the Christian tradition of deep thinking around reconciliation and conflict resolution mm. is known about. And I've studied it a little bit, partly because this podcast has given me a great interest in it. And I'm always amazed how much of a straight line there is between the teachings of Jesus and, and many of the faith-based and non-faith-based yeah, uh, exactly. reconciliation movements in the world. So what have you learned? What are the theological principles that you were drawing on then and that you're drawing on now? Um, I think the, oh gosh, I mean, I, I'm thinking about this because if I ever write another book, it's going to be around that. Um, and it won't be very good again, but I'm, it's on my mind. Um, so this is, I can't, it's difficult to keep it in a really short, organized answer because I'm not, I haven't got my thoughts that clear yet. I think at the heart of the theological principle is the Christian basis of reconciliation of the God who comes and gives his life that we may have a bridge between being human and knowing God, between our separation from God and intimacy with God. And that bridge which is pictured on the cross is uh, and is obtained on the cross um, says so much about reconciliation because it makes it the very heart and foundation of what it is to be a Christian. You are reconciled to God. And the second thing is the lavish extravagance of God. So reconciliation overflows into the world like a huge um, 
wave of water that overflows well beyond the boundaries of the church. So part of our call as Christians and and, uh, as human beings is to seek peacemaking because that is what we are made for. And uh, to build peace, to enable ourselves to be different, diverse, and yet to care for, love one another, support each other. Those things are at the very heart of my understanding of what it is to be a, a part of the church, but also of what it is to be a human being. That's beautiful. Um, so those fundamental principles, those skills that you've developed, you're needing them heavily now as you lead a, a church that is incredibly different globally and incredibly diverse nationally. You know, several years ago, you were dealing with women bishops. Now we're right as we head into the Lambeth Conference next year in a very fragile moment again around gay marriage. Um, As you navigate and you talk to different people on different sides of that divide, many of whom, all of whom find it incredibly painful and an incredibly challenging moment in the church, what is the key thing that you keep coming back to? And how much of a role do you think sacred values plays in it? I think the key thing, well, the key thing, a key thing, and remember, I always assume I'm partly wrong in everything I say, but I think a key thing is the call of the church in its mission and in its proclamation and declaration of the love of Christ and the all-embracing love of God in Jesus Christ, reaching out to every individual, every human being, is to demonstrate the capacity to deal with diversity without hatred. And one of the, you know, I've said this so often, it's a complete truism and a complete cliche, but the impact of the web of social media especially is like turning a telescope round Um, if you've been looking at it through the wrong way and you turn it around the right way or looking at a sight that you've seen with your naked eye and you look at it through a strong telescope and suddenly everything's much closer. All diversity is bought right in front of us, but without relationships. And we don't seem to have the capacity that when we see someone who's very different or saying things that are very different, to assume, to start with the assumption until proven otherwise, that their intentions are positive, that they're saying what they believe, that they want a good outcome. So we, our instinct is to convict unless innocence is proved, convict of deceit, of uh, trickery, of underhandedness, of not believing what they say, whatever it is, we, we bring a hermeneutic of suspicion. And the church in the, the great value, I think we have to say, is the church needs to say, yes, we're utterly diverse. We have people from uh, Christians in the Torres Straits in, in, in Australia uh, or, or Papua New Guinea or um, the DRC, whose whole experience in the last cases of war and of terror and of intense poverty, through to people in some of the richest and most stable, well, 
the richest and most stable parts of the planet. And they're all part of the one church. And they are brought face to face in a way that we've never been able to imagine before. Uh, not just once every 10 years at a you know, gathering of bishops or something, but every single day through, through, through the news and through social media. And we have so far to go to learn how to deal with that in the love of God. And that's what I think is the fundamental principle. Yes, disagree. Of course we disagree. I mean, 2,000 languages, 1,500 cultures, that's only the Anglicans. Um, of course we disagree passionately. But how do we make sure that disagreement models a capacity to live on one planet as one human race, caring for and loving one another and not defining our identity either by the will to power or the need for an enemy. I think there's a very powerful argument on a kind of global scale and how we live together in nations. To be very specific about the Church of England or the Anglican Communion, one of the ways I've been thinking about it is you know, there, there, there is an attempt or at least lip service given to a sacred value of unity, of the, the body of Christ um, as one body. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about love one, love one another, and that's how people will know that I'm yours. And we know that when churches split and schism, it doesn't look good. Um, <laughs> but there are also another kind of broiling set of sacred values, which are very different on either side. Uh, you know, and one might be about a kind of, a particular way of reading scripture and scripture as authoritative and a way of, of holding course, ourselves to account. And, yes. and, you know, and also a scripture on the other side and, and some of the principles that deriving from scripture around equality and, and dignity. At what point do, at what point do one of those other sacred values um, become bigger than unity for you? Where, where would it be the point where you say unity is no longer the thing we need to fight for? If we're in Jesus Christ, we are one by the choice of God, not by human choice. Our task is not to find unity, it is to live out unity. It's very, very straightforward. And that starts from, and so when is that overwhelmed? It's when people are, uh, deny the, the love and uh, deny the deity of Christ, where, where the, the fundamental understandings that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life, to quote John 3.16. Um, and I could go on with a dozen others, but that'll do. It's a fairly foundational verse in the New Testament. If that's what God has done, and you slightly misquoted, if I may say, John 17, Jesus says, that we are, he prays that we will be one so that the world, which in John, of course, means everyone outside the church, that the world may know that he has come from the Father. So the purpose of unity is to reveal the love of Christ, the love of God who has, been, who has come from God to draw us to God. So what overwhelms that? What overwhelms that? I can't think of anything that overwhelms that. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, yes, there'll be plenty of things we disagree on, and we say to other Christians, you're wrong. But for those who are Christians, and the test of being a Christian is saying, Jesus is Lord. This is, again, John in, uh, his, in his first epistle. Um, the test of being a Christian is so clear and so simple 
and so basic that it is sufficient to transform the life of the greatest intellectual and sufficient for the person with immense, for the youngest child or the person with immense disabilities and learning disabilities to know that they are loved by Jesus Christ. That is why we are one. As you were coming in, you were saying that uh, the, the life is challenging at the moment on a church level and on a national level. So let's just turn briefly to your national role. And I'm fascinated by how you choose what to speak on. Oh, golly. Um, because, <laughs> oh. the, you know, you oh, can read reams and reams of people saying the Archbishop should speak on this, he should speak on this, he's not doing enough on this. And then oh, yeah, the absolutely. exact opposite, I wish he'd not talk about this or this. And in fact, you know, the, the public at large seem confused. They agree with you on lots of things, but they're also not sure if they want you to be speaking on anything. Absolutely. So it's, what is that process? I assume it's a team process. Uh, and what have you learned from, from picking your battles and winning oh, some and losing uh. some? Uh, I think I've learned that I need a good process. <laughs> How do I decide? Uh, it... Reading, listening, hearing, thinking. Listening is particularly important. Um, you can't fight every battle. And the church, you know, one of the things I we have, the danger is seeing it's the Archbishop of Canterbury who's got to do it all, which is just ridiculous or the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York, we have 40 diocesan bishops. We have 26 in the House of Lords. We have to um, recognise that different people have skills in different areas. So you pick battles only when you have a particular opportunity, or you don't pick battles. You pick something to say when you have a particular opportunity which coincides really clearly with something that is deeply fundamental and important about the Christian gospel and Christian message and its impact on society. So, for example, uh, last week when there was that bizarre foreign office, um, home office letter about the nature of Christianity being deeply violent, you know, this sort of very odd letter. In fact, another one came out yesterday, I think, or um, something like that, equally odd. Um, it is highly appropriate for the Bishop of Durham, who leads for the church on immigration, to say something rather than rather than me. I mean, I retweeted his statement, but, you know, it's his, that's what he really gets. He knows, he's forgotten more about it than I know. And um, the same thing goes with a whole host of other bishops on other subjects. So let's get away from thinking it's just the Archbishop of Canterbury. Second thing is we do have a process here of people who I'll say, you know, I think I need to talk about um, inequality towards Martians. And, 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 and everyone closes their eyes briefly and says, I think that's a really, really, really bad idea. And, you know, after a while I sort of drop it. Um, and then we have other points where we'll talk about something where there's an invitation and we look at it and we think this is a really important time to say something about injustice or um, areas where the Christian heritage of this country, not its current belief, it's Christian heritage and tradition and deep subset of values, foundational values, are being contradicted by actions or by inaction or by circumstances that we see. And it might be on something very controversial or something quite minor. 
Um, did that make any sense at all? Yes, it did. And quite surprised, really. Um, on something where there is a lot of kickback, say on Wonga, where the church has been taking an amazing lead, and then because of the bizarre governance setup and complexity, you yeah. know, there was an accusation of hypocrisy. How do you personally? Is that something that makes you angry? Do you feel sick? Are you very sanguine about it? What's your kind of emotional journey around the ups and downs with that? Oh, the emotional journey is uh, anger directed at myself. I just think, what a klutz. Um, honestly, uh, you should have thought, not, not, not said it, but you should have thought through the implications more carefully. I mean, the, uh, Wonga was some time ago, Amazon last autumn. It only in the TUC speech that caused all the problems, um, almost all of which I stick, to, well, all of which I stick to very clearly. I think it was a very basic, it wasn't a particularly imaginative speech. Um, an extra half sentence about the fact that the church commissioners had a shareholding in Amazon and we engage with Amazon on things we're uncomfortable with uh, would have avoided all that, and I just thought, what an idiot, why didn't I think of that? Um, so that's my, and then over time, you just sort of settle down and you work out what you learn from that and you try and do better next time. And you also, there's, there is increasingly in this job a, um, a sense of just keep your head down, keep your head below the parapet, don't say anything controversial, you know, say... You know, Christmas is a good time for being nice to each other and uh, chocolate is good at Easter and, you know, confine one's deep social interpretation to that kind of comment. Um, and wouldn't it be nice if we were all nicer to one another? Um, and you get, there, is an, um, there is a drive not ever to be found in the newspapers ever again in as long as I live. And you just have to say that's not the job but it's not the job to try and get column inches either the job is to seek to follow jesus christ and to speak clearly on issues that come out when it is necessary to do so and work out how you work out when it's necessary and i absolutely uh, shudder at the phrase self-care um, but I can't think of a quicker way of saying it so for your spiritual and emotional and physical health what are the kind of things that you do I always think there's people in the public conversation that we forget about their hinterland and everything that's going on inside them as a person in their family and their networks so if you're willing if it doesn't feel too vulnerable or too invasive what are the things that you do to try and keep yourself stable as those waves are breaking and um, you're riding a roller coaster of public opinion? Well, you'd have to ask my colleagues if I succeeded at all in keeping myself stable or uh, if I did any of that at all. Uh, but what kind of things? I mean, there's obvious things like exercise. Uh, there's the extraordinary blessing of being married to the person to whom I'm married, who is uh, incredibly important in that. There's prayer and particularly contemplation of the love of Christ and the vulnerability of Christ in his incarnation, in his death, um, through the Eucharist, through the communion service, particularly through uh, contemplation in front of the sacrament, in silence, there's prayer, 
There's a host of friends who pray with us and for us, um, who are faithful in doing that. Um, uh, there's holidays and days off. There's a lot of reading. And then you use the word hinterland. It's one of the standard family jokes. As I'll say, why don't we do this? And and the expression, now dad's on to developing his hinterland again, you know, or um, honestly, you know, hinterland day coming up. <laughs> I thought it was a very unusual word that I use in my family, so that's nice. Oh, is that's really yeah. interesting. I have this nightmare that I've got no hinterland at all. So I'm trying, you know, and, and uh, I, I don't know whether I do or not. Um, uh, reading, getting away, reading, reading things that are nothing to do with the life of the church. What's your switch your brain off, other than the West Wing, which we know about, and I'm also a massive fan of? Um, it varies. Um, um, we've just discovered The Night Manager, which we hadn't watched, and uh, I'm not sure. It, it's what a friend of ours calls very intense, so I'm not sure how we stand that. I, I mean, I read you know, ancient history or modern history, history, Politics, um, biographies, um, that sort of thing. Um, listen to music, uh, classical music, I'm afraid. Uh, Don't need to apologise. Uh, um, Britain's War Requiem, I, I listen to again and again and again. I mean, it's not exactly a switch the brain off. Poetry, uh, um, Wilfred Owen, Mihail O'Shall, um, that kind of... Uh, different poets uh it varies it just depends on my mood um and really boring boring things like meaningless films um uh, uh last weekend my my wife was away seeing someone and our, our daughter who lives with us and and i said right we can watch the films mum never loves watch never likes watching so we sat down and watched her one of the Marvel films, you know, and we were just, we had fish fingers and uh, peas and chips and lots of ketchup and uh, sat and watched a Marvel film. And that was a real disconnect. Yes. <laughs> My husband's doing a philosophy PhD and he also is working his way through the Avengers. As oh, yes, absolutely. It uh, was an Avengers film. Yes. And it was, it was, I'm glad I'm really reassured by that because I went to bed feeling slightly guilty. <laughs> No need, I don't think. Uh, I'm going to finish with my the question that I ask everyone, which is about um, across different sets of divides. Are there things that when Christians or the church speaks in public, you'd like them to do less of or to stop doing? And also for the non-religious, um, if they're when people perhaps say stuff about the church and politics and public life that really just makes you wince or um, sigh, are there things you'd like them to stop doing or things you'd just like them to understand? I realise that's you know two great sweeping groups, but bear with my simplistic question. Don't oversimplify complexity. Uh, very few things in life are totally binary. Some really important things are, but very few things are binary. And either and categorizing you know, groups of people as bad or good uh, really worries me, both in the church and outside it. And reintroducing the concept of a willingness or a capacity for people who've gone wrong to be forgiven, to find redemption, whether which is a religious word, but whether it's within the church or outside it. Um, 
is really, it seems to me to be one of the key things in our public life. You know, once you've been a Remainer or a Brexiteer, you are that forever. Well, you're not. People aren't like that. That's not how the world works. Stop being binary and simplifying the enormous complexity of human beings and groups of human beings even more and start reflecting some of that complexity. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but I think it really would enable us to get alongside people as we see aspects of groups and people that we respect and like together with things we're really uncomfortable and unhappy with. And that is part of sometimes conflict management happens, not through finding a solution because there isn't one in an awful lot of conflicts, but finding the capacity to live in the conflict without destructive violence. And that is at the heart of reconciliation. I'm going to squeeze in one more because what you said about forgiveness was very helpful and you've written about it in Prospect and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about and we'd like to do something at Theos around social forgiveness. Individual forgiveness, I think, is one thing, but social forgiveness certainly at least was accepted as a possibility, I think, as part of the Christian uh, background white noise of our culture. But particularly in this moment with, uh, with, um, with let's take Me Too as an example, what we have is... uh, I think gestures to, towards repentance that sound more like kind of PR spun apologies yes. and a fear that if we move too fast to forgiveness, um, then we're just allowing perpetrators and collaborators with oppression to, um, to get off the hook and nothing will ever change. So I feel like the concept of forgiveness, there's now deep suspicion and hostility towards it. And I'm questioning how do we recapture its power and goodness in ways that don't Uh, perpetuate the problems of injustice? Um, I think by accepting fully that sin has consequences and wrong has consequences and injustice has consequences and people must face those consequences. Where someone has done something wrong, there is a consequence. So cheap grace, I think this takes us straight back to Bonhoeffer uh, and the concept of cheap grace. We don't have cheap grace. There is a cost. There is repentance. There is a genuine need for repentance and a journey of repentance and redemption, both for groups and for individuals. If you take Me Too as an example, we cannot put the issues that have quite rightly been raised by Me Too behind us until we have concepts and understandings of social behavior, particularly between men and women that mean that it is utterly accepted that the kind of behavior that's been exposed is simply wrong and that there are consequences to indulging in that kind of behavior. And, you know, you, in other words, wrong leads to things happening. Cause and effect have to be rediscovered before you can find redemption. Justin, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast 
or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.